0: Turn to Psalm 15. I like to switch things up a little bit so we don't get too attached to our traditions. Psalm 15. And so as to minimize all distractions. Stay where you are on your feet. And let's hear the sober words of David in Psalm 15. It says a Psalm of David. O Yahweh. Who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Please be seated. That's of the message today is the indications of a true worshiper. This psalm that I just read answers some very important questions. Questions like, how do we approach God? What does God require of those who worship him? How do we approach the sovereign king in any manner of life? Or how about this one? Should you view corporate worship on Sunday as just another weekly event on your calendar requiring uh, merely outward preparation and logistical planning? That's a good question, isn't it? Sometimes I wonder if that demands a positive answer. Notice in verse 1, the psalmist, inspired by the Spirit, Begins by asking these very pertinent questions. He says, oh, Lord, which again is God's covenant name. It's Yahweh in the Hebrew. But in our English translations, it says Lord because of a Jewish superstition, but it's actually Yahweh in the original. Who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? We see here another Hebrew parallelism, where the second line restates the first line. In the first question, David refers to Yahweh's tent. The KJV translates this as tabernacle. And considering the context of David's psalm, it does indeed refer to Yahweh's tabernacle, which in David's day was a temporary construction that the Israelites used For worship prior to the temple. You can read about its specific dimensions in Exodus 26 and 27. For the sake of time, we won't turn there. What's important to understand now is the fact that the tent or dwelling place, it could be rendered, the tabernacle, was divided into two main rooms. There was the holy place and then there was the holy of holies. The rooms were separated by a veil, similar to an entry screen, embroidered with cherubim and hung by golden clasps. The Holy of Holies housed the Ark of the Covenant, which was a wooden box overlaid with gold, containing the stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant was the heart of the tabernacle. Because the very presence of God dwelt within it. And since no man can see God and live, Exodus thirty three twenty, only one man, once per year, could go into the Holy of Holies to do one specific thing. To sprinkle blood. The blood of an unblemished lamb on top of the mercy seat, which was the lid Of the Ark of the Covenant. Thereby doing this, he would appease the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And so David rightly asked, with that in mind, who may come into the presence of God? Who? The second question, David refers to Yahweh's holy hill which is just another name for Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which was the place where Solomon would later build the temple. Both questions in verse 1 are asking who may go into God's presence and worship him. This text is a pilgrimage psalm. It's about worship. Both questions are intended, as I said, to solicit the same response. Right now, the implication that I think you have gathered is by asking who, right off the bat, we get that there are spiritual qualifications for true worshipers. In other words, there are moral requirements for worshipers. Take note, the psalmist does not say, all may abide in my tent. He asks rhetorically, who? He's very clear. He presents this question to his readers so that they may learn how to approach God in worship. What follows in verses 2 to 4 are the answers. In our present time, in this local church at SV Bible, and in our universal evangelicalism, this psalm could not be more relevant Because I know that at least one person here today has not prepared themselves for worship. And I know several of you have an unbiblical view of worship. Not only am I bound by the commandment in 2 Timothy 4 to convince, rebuke, and exhort with long-suffering and teaching... Not only that, but I love God too much not to tell you something this morning. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, come just as you are to worship. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Now, we used to sing this song in this church, but not anymore. That praise song has done immense damage to the church. Perhaps even to your personal theology, because it's a lie. Now, I am not denying that Jesus presently commands, not invites, all unbelievers to come to him by faith for the free gift of imputed righteousness. Amen. However, even in that universal call to believe and repent, there is a condition, and that condition is to come to Christ with a humble and contrite heart, not a proud, hard heart. Jesus said, come to me just as you are. No. He said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me. Then a qualification. All who are weary and heavy laden. He wasn't saying, come as you are. He's saying, those of you who are burdened by your own spiritual bankruptcy and the weight of trying to save yourself by keeping the law, come to me. And I will give your soul eternal respite. But today it's not a message dealing with the universal call to come to Christ so that you may be justified freely in him. Today is a message revealing God's expectations for you as a true worshiper of the Lord Jesus. And that was a footnote so I could be perfectly clear. if you've heard many of my sermons before, you know that I am a dogmatic, passionate, fervent preacher of Sola fide. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Amen but I am also just as committed to the doctrine of sanctification because Scripture reveals that God does care deeply about how we conduct ourselves and how we think. This psalm is about your sanctification, not your justification. In Psalm 15, there are six indications that you are indeed a true worshiper of the one, true, living, holy God. If you can confidently say that these indications are evident in your life, then be encouraged and be strengthened and be edified. But if there's any doubt on any one of these, I will urge you, because my conscience compels me to urge you, to obey the summons in Matthew 11:28 28, and be reconciled to God. And then seek to be a true worshiper of God, as that is the ultimate goal of every believer. To glorify Him in all we do. So let's look at these indicators. The first indicator of being a true worshiper is how you live. How you live. Look at verse 2. David says, He who walks with integrity... Literally, this means whole or sound in the Hebrew. It refers to the wholeness of a person's character. If you say you have integrity, that implies that all of the areas of your life are consistent. In other words, he who walks with integrity is the same person Monday through Sunday. He's not one person Sunday morning and another person on a Friday night. Having godly integrity means in every department of your life, you are following the Lord. You are the same person when you're with church people. And when you're with your secular co-workers. You're the same person when you're around your pastor or elders. And when you're around your friends. You're the same person when you're around your immediate family members. Especially your spouse and kids. And when you're around your neighbors. That is to say hypocrites are not welcome to come into God's holy tent and worship. Those who lack consistent integrity need to wipe their feet at the door before they come in. Because the psalmist is saying only those who have whole, sound, consistent character are ready to to worship the king of kings. Look at the second line of verse 2. It also has to do with how you live. The psalmist says, and works righteousness. Now, as good Reformed Protestants, we don't need to quiver when we see this, okay? It's not talking about justification. Remember, sanctification. God does want you to work. There is no let go and let God in the Bible. On the contrary, we are to work hard, very hard in our faith. But work hard at what? The psalmist says we need to work hard at being righteous. I that we are to live into conformity with God's own character according to his standard, not ours. And definitely not the world's. 1 Samuel 15, he wrote, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. So what Samuel is saying there is that God is after the internal reality of your heart. All of the religious activity is worthless. If you aren't genuinely seeking after God's own heart and being conformed in the inner man, To the image of Christ. And so, as you look at your own life, do you see an indicator of being wholly consistent and being intent on transforming your mind to the likeness of Christ? I know that's a tall order. I know it. To be perfectly consistent, to work hard. But I'm not making this up. According to the psalmist, this is who may enter into the worship center of God. Not only must a true worshiper indicate a consistent and righteous life, you also have to consider, number two, how you talk. How you live and how you talk. Second, second line of verse two, he says, and speaks truth in his heart. Now listen to this. Our words are important to God. He wants us to speak truth all of the time. But how can a man speak truth? Well, he must learn it first. And he must let it dwell richly in him. Jesus said in Luke 6:45, his mouth speaks from that which what? Fills the heart. So whatever is in your heart, right, is going to come out of your mouth. As Christians, we must be proclaimers and defenders of truth. So that you can fill your heart with truth and then speak what is true. That is why we do expository preaching. So you get a regular intake of truth. We must be teachers of the truth. So you can fill your heart with truth and then speak what is true. This is why we have a sound curriculum for our kids. And this is why we have qualified teachers teaching in this church. So you can know what to speak based on what's in your heart. We need to be singers of the truth. Amen? So you can fill your heart with truth and then sing the truth. That is why we carefully select traditional and contemporary hymns and accompany it with music that is not going to distract you from engaging your mind with the words we sing did you know even even based on the setup we have here sends a message that that as as, as faithful and as gifted and as much as we love daniel and the, and the, and those who who provide music support they're off to the side that's on purpose it's because they're not the focus it's, it's the words on the screen. This pulpit is in the middle for a reason, not because there's anything special about me. I'm just a broken vessel. But this pulpit is sending you a message to you that what's on this pulpit is primary. It's going out into your heart, so that you can speak what is true. So David informs us that we sh- that, 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 that truth should come out of our mouths. But in in the beginning of verse 3, he tells us what should not come out of our mouths. He says he does not slander with his tongue. This can either mean casts a slur or picks up something discreditable, In the sense of raking up accusations unnecessarily. So slander is to welcome discredit upon another person or to attack the reputation of others, which is. To basically attack the life or character of another. We've all done this to some degree. And the longer we're in Christ, the more we should hate slander. Mainly because if you don't hate it, you indicate that you are not a true worshiper. Guess where the word slander comes from? Devil. Devil means slander. Diabolos means slanderer. And so we are never, get this, we are never more like the devil than when we slander someone. And the Bible has plenty to say about slander. Proverbs 10.18, he who spreads slander is a fool. Proverbs 16.28, a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 25.18, this one hurts. Like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. Pretty pretty vivid, huh? And so it's plain to see that a slanderous mouth has no place in the tent of God. Just as you would not tolerate me coming into your home and slandering your wife or your husband, or your children, you would not tolerate that, would you? You should not tolerate it in your own heart with equal fury against anyone, especially those in God's tent. If you hate slanderous speech, then that does indicate you're a true worshiper. The third indicator of being a true worshiper of God is how you treat others. How you treat others. Look at the second line of verse 3. Nor does evil to his neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone with whom you have contact with or anyone whom you cross paths with. It's not just the person who lives next door to your house. Elsewhere in Scripture, the word rendered evil is translated as bad, hurt, harm, ill, wrong, displeasure, affliction, trouble, or calamity. And so what he's saying is, a true worshiper does not sin against people. But on the contrary, he does good. Which is exactly what Paul commands us in Galatians 6. He says, so then, as we have the, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are what? Of the tent of God. The household of God. The church of God. Do good to them. When it comes to how you treat others, there's also a passive aspect here. The active aspect is not doing evil. But the passive aspect is not allowing yourself to passively sit by and receive accusations against your neighbor. Third line of verse 3. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Which means to be slow to believe evil of another. So be extremely cautious and skeptical of gossip and slander or any negative report. Be cautious. One who does not take up a reproach against his friend keeps in mind Proverbs 16:18. Memorize that. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and what? Examines him. Listen, there are always two sides to a story. Always. No exceptions to that. The biggest lesson that I've learned as a Christian, and especially since I've been in vocational ministry, is this. Always assume the person first telling you a bad story is either, number one, missing some key facts, two, they're ignorant of the context, or number three, they heard it from a secondary source. Rather than assuming their story is right, which to my shame I have before, instantly assume they don't. Because the Proverbs sixteen eighteen. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. So there must be sure, objective, Clear information gathered before you believe a bad report about anyone. Especially someone in your local church. And especially your church leaders. Man, before we were converted, we delighted in gossip. We loved it. Probably because it makes us feel good about ourselves when other people are down. But now that we're saved, give your brothers and sisters the benefit of doubt. Be slower to judge. We mustn't act like dramatic, immature schoolgirls going around spreading unverified accusations about one another. And then if you do hear that, turn, to, turn a deaf ear turn a deaf ear to bad reports until you verify the truth. A true worshiper of God rejects any and all forms of slander and gossip. And if you find yourself intrigued and entertained by hearing about the woes and misfortunes of others from secondary sources, That indicates you need to repent. How you treat others indicates whether or not you are truly worshiping God according to his requirements. The fourth indication that you are a true worshiper is this. How you view unbelievers. How you view unbelievers. The beginning of verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Now, literally, reprobate designates the one who is cast off, rejected, and abhorred. In Christian theology, a reprobate person is an ungodly, vile, wicked unbeliever. Paul in Romans 1 says the reprobate suppress the truth by their wickedness. They suppress it. And because of that, Paul says, the wrath of God rests upon them. One commentator noted that they, the reprobates, carry pollution and death along with them. Now the psalmist isn't saying, excuse me, the psalmist is saying that one requirement to worship Yahweh is to despise reprobates. But you may be wondering, how does this jive with Jesus' teaching? How am I I, to apply this in light of what Jesus said in Matthew 5? To love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or even Paul in Romans 12 says we are to bless those who persecute you. So here's how we are to interpret Psalm 15, 4. In light of the unambiguous doctrine of Jesus and the apostles... To love. How do we love those who hate us but despise them? (laughs) Well, a true worshiper of God despises the reprobate's ways. He despises their lifestyle. He despises the fact that they reject a life without God. So when we come before the Lord... We are not to respect the worldview of a reprobate. Instead, we are to honor those who have a biblical worldview. They should be our role models. Verse 4. Second line, verse 4. But who honors those who fear the Lord. That is to say that we should esteem those Who reflect a life of godliness. Those are the men and women whom we look up to. Not people who do not know God. The people who fear the Lord are your role models. Now, let me ask you a question. What does the Bible compare you to? Anybody remember? A sheep. Right? Or, yeah, the the metaphor that the Bible uses to speak of a Christian, a sheep. Now, what does sheep do? They follow. Sheep follow. Naturally, we, we follow someone. Some people might argue with that, but it's true. You say, oh, I follow Jesus, not a man. Well, yes, of course, but you do follow someone. You all esteem someone. Or many in this world. You all open your heart to someone. Who in turn influences you. And sadly many Christians do not esteem those who fear the Lord. But instead. Esteem those who fear anything but the Lord. And the surest and easiest way to discern. If you honor. Those who fear the Lord. Is to consider how you spend the majority of your time what you listen to what you watch what you listen to and what you watch will influence you God wants you to esteem those whom fear him it's very straightforward and it indicates whether or not you are a true worshipper The fifth indication that you are a true worshiper is how you keep your word. How you keep your word. Look at the last line in verse 4. The psalmist goes on to say, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Meaning that when he makes a promise or a pledge and circumstances or conditions change, he still keeps his commitment even if it's inconvenient. Boy, do we need this one. Let's camp out here for a minute. There are a million examples of professing believers breaking commitments due to some annoyance or some disadvantage, whether it's big or small. The scripture does not differentiate between major promises or commitments and small, menial promises or commitments. We are to let our yes be yes and our no, no. ...all the time, consistently. It goes back to having integrity. So if you make a commitment, you keep it. Even if it requires you to go out of your way. Look look what the psalmist says. Even if it hurts you. You keep your commitment. Now let's be honest. Some of us really stink at this. Don't we? Some of us are really not good at keeping our commitments... And it's no trivial matter. Some do it often and take advantage of people. But I'll do it once in a while. We all do it. Have you ever said, I'll pray for you? And then you don't. Have you ever said, I'll be there? And then don't show up? Have you ever said, I'd like to serve in this or that ministry, but then you forget about it? Or even blow it off? Have you ever said, I'll be there at 7 p.m., and then you show up at 7 30? And I'm going to close my eyes for a second when I say this. Because I don't want anybody to think I'm preaching at you. Every time you're late, you break a commitment. Every time you're late to a scheduled meeting that you've committed to, you are saying, my time is more important than yours, and I'm unwilling to keep my commitment to you. Now, there are times, I know, where we are providentially hindered. Your car breaks down on the way to the airport, and you're late to pick up your friend, and you leave him stranded, right? Your alarm goes off because you set it incorrectly, or it, your phone ran out of battery. That happens. But most of the time we're late, it's because we prioritize ourselves over the other person. Friends, we must do what the psalmist says. If we're going to make a promise or commitment, we do everything within our power to keep it. And when we fail, we don't make excuses, we repent. one who makes a habit of failing to keep promises and commitments indicates a heart that does not desire to worship God. Now the final indication is in verse 5. Now even I thought this was a little strange, this last indication. So far we've, Talked about your lifestyle. We talked about your speech, how you treat people, how you view unbelievers, how you keep your word. And now we're going to deal with money. That's right. I'm joining the ranks of my Baptist preachers. And I'm going to talk about money. But it's in the text. The last indication of whether or not you're a true worshiper is how you view money. Verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest. Now, a little background is necessary to understand this regarding how God prescribed the practice of lending money. So listen carefully. In the Mosaic Covenant, in the Mosaic Civil Code, Jews were prohibited to charge compounded interest when they lent money to their fellow Hebrews in need. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Who's your countrymen? The Israelites, right? Don't insert America in there. Don't insert American in there. Talk about Israelites under a specific covenant, right? Again, context matters. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned interest. But look at verse 20. You may charge interest to a foreigner. Man, charge them charge them Gentiles, man. You, you better make a buck off of those dirty Gentiles, all right? But to your countrymen, you shall not charge interest, okay? The emphasis is on who the money was lent to. The psalmist is not condemning people in general being charged interest, okay? So that's not the application here. So don't go to your bank and say, the Bible says you can't do this, you're wrong. Stop charging me interest. No, they're allowed to do that, and it's righteous, But within the family of God, in the tent of God, in the church of God, there needs to be a practice of genuine love through financial help to those impoverished without the extra burden of interest. Again, just like with regard to how you treat others, there is a passive aspect to how you view money. Look at the second line of verse 5. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, he cannot be bought by rich people. Faithfulness to the Lord and love towards his spiritual family is far more important to him than getting rich. Money does not entice him to do evil and sin against God. You've all heard the idiom money talks, right? Well, in the church... Money cannot even speak. In the church, money should not even have a whisper. Or else we're in trouble. So be encouraged by that. Be encouraged that your elders aren't in it for the money. We're not fond of sordid gain, and neither should you be. There is much more I could say about this, but... For the sake of time, I need to begin concluding here. In Psalm 15, we are confronted with what the Lord God requires of those who have a desire to worship him in spirit and truth. Now, in order for God to receive worship from you, there needs to be a consistent pursuit of holiness in your life. That's the summary of the whole message. If you are, by God's grace, doing what you can, all you can, to pursue a consistent, holy life. Now comes your worship. In other words, we must dress ourselves in the spiritual clothes of Psalm 15 before every Lord's day. Now. Now. I'll allow David to conclude this message. He leaves us with an encouragement. He leaves us with a statement of strong assurance. Look at the last line of verse 5. He says, he who does these things will never be shaken. In other words, if your life indicates that you're a true worshiper of God, then you will stand on an immovable foundation. Notice what it says. Notice it says, he who does, he who lives, he who applies, he who owns, he who practices, will never be separated from the congregation of true worshipers, and therefore indicates that he truly is a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how clear it is. Oh, I pray that we all may repent, myself included. For not coming to your house Sunday after Sunday, not preparing ourselves, not. Wiping our feet at the door and dressing ourselves spiritually appropriately to come into your presence in corporate worship. May we be those who are committed to applying the truths in Psalm 15. And when we are not, may we repent by your grace. Amen.